Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 915. To begin this week's program, David Lorelau welcomes Robert Ford, radio broadcaster for the Houston Astros. David and Robert begin by discussing how important it is to try and get name pronunciations right in their lines of work and how challenging that can be. They also talk about college basketball allegiances, the lack of African-American broadcasters in the major leagues, how to cover the Astros sign-stealing scandal as an Astros employee, and just how much fun it is to work with Dusty Baker and Steve Sparks. Robert also explains the difference between critical and negative and how that plays into calling his own team. The, the biggest thing is you don't want to belabor something, but you, you still have to call a spade a spade. Because if I said everything was great that the Astros did and everything the other team did was terrible, I wouldn't have very much credibility. Because then if I said something, you know, Altuve made great play, they'd be like, well, he always says the Astros make great plays. So I don't know that I can believe him. Following that, Eric Longenhagen and Jason Martinez catch up on the latest spring training news. They talk about the White Sox adjusting to injury news, the Cardinals outfield, and just how much option years can affect who makes the opening day roster. Jason and Eric also discuss staff predictions in the AL West, and Eric has thoughts about the inevitable implications of a league trying to respond to a game that is moving too fast. But the wrong type of person is the one who benefits from that. The person who can quote-unquote move fast and break things, right, is the type of person who's going to figure out how to take advantage of the nooks and crannies and loopholes created by the new rules. And they're going to lead into those in the extreme. It's going to become trendy. And then the whole game will shift that way and augment the way it looks like it has with everything else for the last 20 years. And the problem with the move fast and break things philosophy of life or business or whatever is that stuff gets broken. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. We simply could not do what we do without the help of Fangraphs memberships, found over in the Fangraphs.com store, along with all of our great merch. Thank you again for your support, both in previous seasons and in this one coming up. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Robert Ford, the radio play-by-play voice of the Houston Astros. Robert, we're a week away from opening day, give or take. Are you ready? I mean, if not, it's 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 too late, right? <laughs> I, I'm just, I finally learned how to pronounce your last name correctly when you just introduced yourself as many times as I've talked to you over the years. So I feel like this podcast has already been a win. So there's that. It will take all the wins we can get, and uh, <laughs> and the, maybe I'm a little bit under the radar because a lot of people don't know how to pronounce my last name. But hey, maybe maybe that is actually a good thing. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I'm in I'm in broadcasting, so I'm always interested in how people pronounce their names. That's it's just a it's a it's a quirk of being in this business. No, it's very important. I remember uh, a few years ago, the public address announcer at Fenway Park, a uh, man who actually lost his life a few years ago. Right. I remember him walking up to me or in a conversation. He said, whenever he's not 100% sure, he just walks into the visiting clubhouse, walks right up to a man and says, how do you pronounce your name? So he, he would never get it wrong. I mean, that's what I, I mean, I do the same thing. I mean, I haven't been able to this spring for obvious reasons, but yeah, if there's any, like if I have any questions, if I have any doubts and guys always appreciate that too. Like I've never had someone who's been like, Oh, I don't want to tell you, or how could you not know this? Or, you know, whatever the case may be. I remember the only conversation I had with Nori Aoki when he was with the Astros, 
for his one year. He it wasn't even a full season. He was just here. He was in Houston for part of 2017. I went up to him in spring training uh, and he was with his interpreter, but I went up directly to him and said to him, because I knew he would understand me, or at least I was pretty sure he'd understand me. I just went up to him and said, how do you pronounce your first and last name? Because I had heard a couple of different variations and he looked at me and he looked at the interpreter and he looked back at me and he goes, Noriaoki. And, <laughs> and then because his full first name is Norichika and I had heard it pronounced Norichika. So I said, all right, give me your full first name pronunciation. And so he looked at his interpreter again and then he looked at me and he goes, Norichika. I'm like, perfect. Thank you, sir. Welcome to the team. <laughs> And that was that was that was literally the only conversation I had with Dori Aoki over the what three months or so that he was with the Astros. So I guess the only thing that could ever throw you is if a player actually changes the pronunciation of his name. I, I know you're a New York guy. I don't know if you ever really paid attention to hockey, but the is it Walt? See, I'm forgetting what it changed to, but when he broke into the NHL in the 70s, it was Walt Kachuk. <laughs> I think it was it was Walt Tachuk. And then after he had played for a year or two, he asked to get the pronunciation that was actually correct. Well, I mean, there have been quite a few instances of that, and not always because guys just kind of go along with it or whatever. Joe Theismann, you know, the great quarterback for the Redskins, it was Joe Theismann before he became a Heisman candidate at Notre Dame, and it became, well, Theismann rhymes with Heisman. So, yeah, guys will, you know, they'll come up with reasons to... To, to throw us curves every now and again. But yeah, I always try to, I mean, I think that's like the baseline, right? Is to try and get guys' names right. And even still, sometimes we still screw it up. But I think at the very least, you want to make, make that effort. And I always try to, even with umpires, I go down to umpires' rooms. If it's a minor league call-up umpire, um, that's how I know it's um, Adam Hammery, who's now, he's a, a full-time umpire now. But I remember going down to the, to the uh, umpires' room when he was a call-up because I had heard Hamari, Hammery, you know, I mean, even with the umpires. And those guys... Always appreciate it because no one comes to see them, especially not broadcasters. So, yeah, I feel like that's that's the that's the least you can do. That is actually one that I know well because I would hear broadcasters when he first came up say Hamari. And Adam actually grew up in Marquette, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, right. about 30 right. miles from where I grew up. Okay. So, so while I have met Adam since, I had not met him previously, but I knew people who he was related to. So I knew that, hey, it's, it's Hammery. Right, right. To my knowledge, I never walked up to a broadcaster and said, hey, you guys are getting that wrong. <laughs> Many others will, though. But anyhow, go on. No, uh, we are we are going to uh, obviously talk Astros, but seeing as how we are on, have touched a little bit on other sports, I think we should go to some March Madness because you are a Syracuse alum and you work in the Houston market. A lot of listeners may know that tomorrow, we're recording this on Wednesday, but it will, you know, this will run on Friday. The University of Houston is playing Syracuse in the Sweet 16. Does Does that present a moral dilemma for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> it does not. I mean, if I if I work for the University of Houston, it might be a little different. You know, I actually have um there's a guy I went to Syracuse with, Chris Wojcik, and he was a broadcaster at one time for University of Vermont basketball, and then he wound up doing hockey. And he was actually Syracuse got upset by Vermont in the NCAA tournament in 2005, and Chris Wojcik was the radio guy for Vermont who called that upset. That would be a little more unique. I, you know, I, I remember reading an article about him at the time and 
he was like, well, you know, um, this Vermont job's helping pay the student loans that I took out to go to Syracuse. So it's kind of a, you know, a win-win sort of thing. But yeah, with Houston, it's a little different. I actually did broadcast one of their games this year uh, for ESPN. And, um, you know, I do some, you know, I've done a handful of games each of the last few years for them, uh, college basketball. And, you know, and I, you know, I really like Kelvin Sampson, who's a really big baseball fan, by the way, and, you know, really keeps up with what's going on around the game. And I really like that team. And I, yeah, and being in the Houston market, obviously, you know, I hear more about them. I see more of them than I would if I were somewhere else. And I know a lot of University of Houston alums, a lot of University of Houston fans. I've taken, I've taken my daughter to women's basketball games at their home arena to see their women's team. So yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's neat. I mean, I want Syracuse to win, obviously, but also too, I think what helps, I think this would be tougher for me if I thought Syracuse was like a final four team and I felt like Houston was standing in the way, but I mean, there were questions up until maybe the last week of the regular season as to whether Syracuse would even be in the NCAA tournament. So to go from that to, you know, getting to the Sweet 16 and beating West Virginia, you know, a team that uh, certainly has more talent than, than they do and pose some problems. You know, I, I kind of look at this, this is all gravy for me now for, as a Syracuse fan. Again, I want them to win. Also, if they do win, I think, you know, normally Syracuse wins an NCAA tournament game. You know, I usually have something to say about it on Twitter. I might have a little less to say about it if Syracuse wins on Twitter, just because I know, you know, who a lot of my followers are and are, you know, a lot of them are University of Houston fans. But uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not conflicted in the least, but uh, I mean, I'm excited. It should be a really good, really good basketball game. I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, Syracuse matches up. And is it fair to say that the Zags are going to win the tournament? I mean, I'm always wary of the undefeated team that comes into the tournament or the team with one loss that comes into the tournament. Because, I mean, history shows that you're usually going to lose at some point in the tournament. You know, UNLV did. You know, when you think about the team they had in the 90s, you know, there are a couple of Duke teams mixed in there that had one or zero losses, you know, going into the tournament, you know, stuff like that. I mean, not since, what, Indiana in 1976. And also the other thing I worry about with Gonzaga, I mean, they're, they're good. I mean, they are the best team in college basketball. There's no doubt about that. And if they don't win, it's not going to be because they were, you know, somebody was more talented than them. But the thing about Gonzaga is you think about their conference and I mean, they don't, they didn't really play anybody. It's a shame that they, they were supposed to play Baylor in non-conference and that got postponed for COVID reasons. It's a shame that game didn't happen because I think that would have been a really good measuring stick for them. But yeah, I'm always wary of teams that come into the tournament undefeated and teams that, that come into the tournament undefeated and haven't really played very many people. So I think they're, I mean, I think they're the best team, I don't, but the best team doesn't always win, win the NCAA tournament. And if Gonzaga does not win the tournament, who does? I think, you know, and this isn't me trying to pass the buck here. I think this is a tougher year to judge that than any other year because the schedule was so crazy with all the COVID pauses and games beginning postponed. Teams coming into the tournament, I think there's a lot more unknown because they just haven't played as many games and there were pauses. I mean, for example, Syracuse is playing their best basketball of the year right now. They got they, they came together at the right time and they had a couple of COVID pauses and stretches where they had games postponed or had to reschedule and things like that. But they've come together at the right time. But I mean, you know, that Baylor team is really good. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't count out Houston, although I worry about the, my biggest concerns with Baylor and Houston is the fact that as well as they defend and rebound, both of them will go through stretches where they just struggle to score points. And 
you do that at the wrong time against the wrong opponent, you know, you're, you're, you're done. But yeah, I mean, I would say Baylor or Houston. I really like I really like Michigan a lot. I think that's another team that could also win the tournament. That is the team that I would like to see win the tournament, which probably means that they will not. That's <laughs> the way <laughs> fandom goes. Uh, one more basketball question before we switch to uh, to baseball, Robert. And this is a theoretical. Uh-huh. Who would win a game between Houston's all-time best and Syracuse's all-time best team? Obviously, a lot of great NBA players over the years for both. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, you have you're talking about first overall pick in the draft and Hakeem Olajuwon, who and I mean I'm I'm a Knicks fan and you know grew up watching Patrick Ewing, but I mean Hakeem Olajuwon was, I mean for me was you know that era before Shaq came into the league, he was the best center in the NBA without question. So you have that you have Drexler obviously who had a fantastic career in the NBA as well. I think Syracuse. I mean I'm biased, so I'm going to give Syracuse the edge. I think Syracuse probably had. The, you look at the collection of players that they their best players. They were probably maybe not quite as successful professionally as the best Houston players. But I mean, although Derek Coleman had a very long NBA career, uh, Sherman Douglas had a very long NBA career, but he probably wouldn't be on the team for Pearl Washington, who didn't have a very good NBA career. You know, Ronnie Sykley, you know, would probably be the center. You know, a lot of ones better than him, but Sykley was a really good college player. I mean, I, I think it's tough. And, you know, it's interesting. The only other time Syracuse and Houston met was uh, the year Houston lost to NC State in the national championship game, the 82-83 season. They met the Carrier Dome, and Syracuse won that game. And that was five slam pajama. That's the best Houston team. And a lot of the guys who would be on their best all-time team are on that team, and Syracuse beat them. So, I mean, maybe that answers the question. And that was a good. that was a really good Syracuse team at the time as well, obviously. Yeah, my inclination would be to say Houston wins because I don't think Syracuse could handle Elijah Wan and Elvin Hayes in the low post. Yeah. But but again, we're talking talking theoreticals. So Right, right. You no, know, and eras are tough. You know, it, it's though, you know, is Will Chamberlain the greatest player or would he not dominate in the modern era? It's an unanswerable question. Right. 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 We should we should jump to baseball. Uh, <laughs> hopefully we haven't lost too many listeners who are who are waiting patiently for baseball. I want to ask you one question related to the cheating scandal, as while it is old news, it is not forgotten news. Did that and will it going forward have any impact whatsoever on your broadcasts? No, um, like on my broad. No, I mean, I still go out there and do my job every day. I think it's like anything that happens with the team, you know, anything, anything that happens, how you approach it depends on where, you know, what your, what your sat status is. So if I was a broadcaster for one of the other 29 major league teams, when it was a series against the Astros, I'd, I'd probably mention it a little bit more than as a broadcaster of the Astros. And that's not hometown bias. It's that our listeners are more familiar with all the ins and outs and what happened in the whole story and, you know, who lost their jobs and what players were, you know, were on those teams. But yeah, as an Astros broadcaster, I certainly, you know, I certainly don't shy away from it, especially last spring training when, you know, Altuve and Bregman are getting booed every time they come to the plate in spring training games. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like the, the people listening can't hear the boos. And I'm sure that, you know, some similar things will happen this year during the regular season. And and those guys have gotten booed a little bit in spring training, not a whole lot. But I mean, when they go to Yankee Stadium, when they go to Oakland, 
when they go to LA, I mean, yeah, I'm sure they're going to get booed. Um, when they go to Anaheim, you know, I'm sure they're going to be Dodgers fans who are going to be there to just to boo the Astros. I mean, you can't, I feel like you can't ignore those things. And I think you're doing your listener a disservice if you ignore it, you know, and yeah, I'm a Astros employee, obviously, but um, I still think you have to, you have to talk about those things in the context of what's going on in the game. Sure. And with bias in mind, Robert, and this is in a general sense, not scandal specific whatsoever. How do you go about striking the balance between shining a good light on the team you know, which the people who employ you obviously want, and being critical of the team where maybe they deserve it. At any given time, players or the team could be playing very bad baseball. Yeah, I mean, the way I've always looked at it is you can be critical without being negative. And I, I think there there's a fine line there. Critical is he should have made that play, you know, that wasn't a, a great at bat and here's why. This guy didn't pitch very well. Here's his line. You can hear his line and tell he didn't pitch very well. There's that. And then there's, you know, really, I think, browbeating the point when you over, you know, when you just overemphasize something or the, you know, overemphasize the negative, I think, or overemphasize the critical part. I think that's when it can veer into being negative. And I think that's what you want to avoid. I do think there are times when you really should hammer home a point and maybe talk a little bit more about something negative involving your team than, you know, you would otherwise. But I think that the, the biggest thing is you don't want to belabor something, but you, you still have to call a spade a spade. Because if I said everything was great that the Astros did and everything the other team did was terrible, I wouldn't have very much credibility. Because then if I said something, you know, Altuve made a great play, they'd be like, well, he always says the Astros make great plays. So I don't know that I can believe them. So I think it's really important to have that credibility there. And you can't have that credibility unless you're critical. Unless I am mistaken, you and Seattle's Dave Sims are the only African-American broadcasters in Major League Baseball. Are you surprised that there aren't more? I'm not surprised. It's just I'm disappointed. I think that, you know, when you think about the, the history of baseball and Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier and you know, you think about the 60s and 70s, and a lot of the, the biggest stars were, were Black or Latino for the first time in baseball history. And then you think about the early 80s when as much as 20% of the players on Major League rosters were Black. And then you think about where we are now, where that's no longer the case. You know, baseball has been prominent in the Black community for generations. It's not as prominent as it once was, just which I think you can say in a lot of communities, honestly, in America anyway. But I think that, um, you know, you can't tell me that there aren't more qualified candidates who are Black, or at least not white, that can call baseball games than just me and Dave Sims. Or the fact that there have only been four lead play-by-play broadcasters in baseball history who have been who have been black. Me, Dave Sims in Seattle, Paul Olden, who did games for a few teams, including the Yankees, and he was the original Tampa Bay Devil Rays radio radio broadcaster, and uh, Bill White, who did Yankees games on TV for many years in the 70s and 80s. I mean, there have only been four. You can't tell me that there have only been four black people in the history of baseball who have been qualified to be a lead play-by-play voice for a major league team. But again, you look at, you know, I mean, baseball, like anything else, is a reflection of society. And you look at 
you know, the way society is and how there are so many fields where uh, representation of people of color, of women, um, I mean, you just go down the list is not maybe what it should be. And I don't think baseball is immune to that at all. Orioles broadcaster Melanie Newman is one of just a few women in Major League Baseball. Just a few short years ago, she was the voice of the Carolina League's uh, Salem Red Sox. And reportedly, they are not going to have a radio broadcast this year due to, to budget cuts. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, and that kind of took some life of its own on Twitter. You know, Gregory Wong, who was supposed to be their broadcaster, is someone I've met and I've talked to and I've, I've listened to his, his, his play-by-play before. He's very talented. I think it's a, it's a bad trend. And I think also, too, you look at, uh, you know, Major League Baseball now controls Minor League Baseball. And I think it would behoove Major League Baseball to make sure every team has a play-by-play broadcaster in the minors. Uh, because that is as good of a, a, a grooming and breeding ground for future major league play-by-play broadcasters as there is. Just like it's a, such a great breeding ground for future major league players. And I think you need that for broadcasters as well. Even if it's a situation like I know in a lot of collegiate wood bat leagues, every team has a broadcaster who does home games. And, uh, you know, so that way you, there's there's always a, a feed. You know, even if your team's on the road, you can listen to the other team's broadcast or something like that. Even if they do that. Because it's never been easier or cheaper to broadcast games. You know, you can just do it online. You don't even have to have a radio station, although that's obviously preferable. I just think that the way minor league baseball has gone with fewer teams, that means fewer opportunities for everybody, including broadcasters. And I just hope this isn't the start of a of a longer trend where teams, a lot of minor league teams just stop broadcasting. And I think, you know, you have a lot of teams at all levels who will blame the pandemic for why they can't do certain things and why they can't hire certain people. And there's some truth to that, but I also think there's certain things that need to be prioritized more. And again, I'm, I'm biased because of what I do for a living. And I worked, I was a broadcaster in the minors for seven years, but I think broadcast should be one thing that that's prioritized at the minor league level. And not only is MLB running minor league baseball, now the Salem Red Sox are owned by the Fenway Sports Group that owns the Red Sox. So I think the Red Sox could probably afford to uh, send a broadcast to pay a broadcaster for one of their affiliates, but yeah, and, and you know, and just on that that point too, you know, with the Red Sox owning that team, you know, that's another thing. You can't tell me like I don't know if I'm someone in charge of you know the Red Sox or someone involved in in the broadcasting realm at any level. I'd want somebody who's up and coming broadcasting the games at Salem. And I believe they own the, what was Pawtucket, right? What's now their AAA team in Worcester. Uh, the Red Sox own that too. Like I'd want guys there, gals there, who potentially could be the next Red Sox broadcaster. I'd want to cultivate that, I would think. And that's something you can do when you own the team. That's easier to do when you own the team. So I think, yeah, that's another reason why it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. For sure. On to the Astros. Describe Dusty Baker. Well, he's very polite on Zoom because uh, <laughs> that's been most of my interactions with him. I like Dusty a lot. And, I, you know, one of the biggest disappointments of just everything that's gone on the last year is I haven't been able to have as many, you know, one-on-one interactions with him. During the regular season, I got him every day for the manager's show. We would do a Zoom one-on-one before, and I'd do my manager show and then he would talk with the, you know, he'd do his regular pregame press conference with all the the other media. And, you know, even in those, even before I would record, record, I'd maybe ask him something or just have a little back and forth with him before we started. 
but yeah, I miss, I mean, one of the great things about Clubhouse Access is, especially doing what I do for a living, you know, being able to go into the manager's office, being able to go in the coach's room and just, you know, just talk with guys and get to know them. And it doesn't even always have to be about baseball. And Dusty's such an interesting guy. Uh, I mean, I could probably do 162 manager shows with Dusty Baker and not talk baseball or the Astro, you know, talk the cur current state of baseball and the Astros currently in any of them and still have plenty of content and still have an interesting five minutes every single day because he's just that interesting and has done so many things in his life and in the game. And so I miss that, but I, I you know, he's very easy to talk to from my standpoint. He always has something to say. I can go so many different directions with him, which I think is an underrated part of this job when you're interviewing, especially someone you have to interview every day, like the manager, which is true with a lot of broadcasts. When you have a manager who has so many varied experiences and so many opinions on things that he's willing to share, like Dusty Baker, that makes it easier to do the manager show after your team just lost 15 to nothing. When you know when you want to break down the game and your team just lost 15 to nothing, nobody wants to do that. And that's how you that's how you annoy a manager is <laughs> is when you 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 want to get into granular details about yeah. So um, your starter gave up eight runs in the first inning. Uh, you know, what were your thoughts on that? Like, that's, yeah, that's a good way to get thrown out of somebody's office. So it's nice when you have a manager who you can kind of go different directions. I remember last year, there was one such game, you know, the Astros lost by a lot. The next day, manager show, I just talked to Dusty Baker about music. And it was funny because he didn't even realize I had started the interview. But we're just going on talking about music. And um, I did the same thing after the Astros lost game three of the ALCS to Tampa Bay. And they, you know, they were down three games to none and one loss away, one more loss away from elimination. We just talked the next day about music. And I said to Dusty, I said, I figured you don't want to talk about your team being down 3-0. So I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to ask you about that. Like, what, what are you going to say? It's, that's not, that's not, I'm not going to get anything out of that. So yeah, to have somebody that you can go so many different ways with and talk about so many different things and, you know, even being able to like, you think about all the hall of famers and all the players that have passed away over the last year, you know, Dusty Baker knew Tom Seaver, he knew Bob Gibson, he knew Lou Brock. I was able to ask about all those guys when they passed away. That's huge. Was your late father's career part of the music conversation you had with Dusty? So last year, you know, after the shutdown, summer camp starts. Dusty was doing Zooms every day, like every manager, you know, before those summer camp games. I didn't log into any of them until the day of the first exhibition game. So the Astros played two games in Kansas City against the Royals before the shortened season started last year. So I logged on for the day of the first game in Kansas City because we were broadcasting that, that game. And, you know, I got on and the first thing Dusty Baker says when he gets on Zoom is he goes, Robert. Hey, man, good to see you. So sorry to hear about your dad. You know, my dad passed away in May. He's like, so sorry. He's like, I didn't, he's like, I was reading about your dad. I didn't know he was such a bad dude, man. I didn't know he had been around so many dudes and music. And like, it just, I was really touched by that because I mean, my dad had passed away in May. This was late July. And Dusty made a point of as soon as he saw me to say something about that and offer his condolences and let me know that, you know, he, you know, knew a little bit about my dad and had read up on my dad. So uh, that was really touching. And that, that was, that was my, that's my favorite moment that I've had with Dusty to this point. Um, but yeah, we've talked about that a little bit 
uh, not a whole lot. And again, that's something we probably talk about more if I was able to be in his office every day. Yeah, a few questions, Robert, about uh, the current Astros team. I was listening to a Baseball America podcast uh, this past week, and one of the hosts predicted a breakout for Kyle Tucker. Is that something that you see happening? A hundred percent. As a matter of fact, on Twitter, uh, I did a Q&A on Twitter maybe a week ago, and one of the questions I got is, who do you think is going to break out? And I said Kyle Tucker, because I think last year was the first time he really looked like this guy who was drafted fifth overall, you know, the first couple of years when he got to the big leagues, he looked overmatched, to be honest. He looked like he didn't quite belong. I mean, it takes guys a little while sometimes. You knew the talent was there. And I think what changed last year is Tucker figured out what pitches he could drive and what pitches he could hit in the air. And once he figured that out, his judgment, I mean, he already had pretty good play discipline, but it got even better because it's not just, you know, for him, it became not just about swinging at strikes. It became swinging at pitches that he knew he could do damage on. And I think his preparation got better. I've certainly heard that from people in the clubhouse. That was one of the concerns the Astros had about Tucker initially was they felt like he didn't quite understand how to prepare and watch video and things like that. And that all seems to have gotten better. And I think watching him in spring training, and I don't think his overall spring training numbers are great, but you see the at-bats, you see the quality of every at-bat, and, and it's always a good quality at-bat. So that all those things are really encouraging to me, and I think he's ready to step up and be a more prominent part of this lineup, especially with the departure of George Springer, and not saying he's going to replace Springer, but he's ready to to assume that role of a guy that, you know, hey, everybody's going to start circling this guy in the lineup whenever they play the Astros. With George Springer gone, will Miles Straw get 500 plus at-bats and steal 40 or 50 bases? I tell you what, he'll get the opportunity to do so. I think whether he gets that many at-bats will depend on him. I think he needs to play well. I think he has the tools to do so. I think the biggest thing for him is he needs to be able to pull the ball and pull it with authority from time to time. I remember hearing from one of the people in our minor league side when Straw was, I think he was at double A at the time, how they would look at his spray chart and the spray chart looked like a left-handed pull hitter spray chart because everything was to right field. If he can at least keep the defense honest and start pulling some balls and make it so that outfielders don't have to play shallow all the time or play him the opposite way, you have to be able to burn guys when they do that from time to time. If he can do that, he's going to get an opportunity and he's going to be on base more and he's going to get a chance to steal bases. So I really think it's up to Miles Straw. Who, Robert, has been the most eye-catching young player in cap this spring? I'm thinking maybe guys younger than a Tucker or a Straw, guys that listeners may not be familiar with. Well, I don't know if this is a guy listeners aren't familiar with, but Pedro Leon, you know, the Astros signed out of Cuba for $4 million. He's looked, I've been really been impressed by the things I've seen from him. Man, can he run? He looks like he can really play the outfield. The Astros are also going to play him at shortstop some as well in the minor leagues. I haven't seen him play there. I'm curious to see how that works out. He's got some quick twitch. Looks like he has a pretty quick bat and uh, not sure. I haven't seen the power necessarily yet, at least not in games. But from what I've heard, it's there. Uh, so he's been a lot of fun to watch. Another guy who is less on the radar would be Hunter Brown, a uh, pitcher who the Astros drafted out of Wayne State Division II school in Michigan. Has, you know, really good high spin fastball that he can throw in the low 90s. He's got a, a 12 to 6 curveball. Uh, that's that's really good. And I think he's he's somebody who could really be a fast riser this year now with a full minor league season and getting a chance to to go out there every fifth day. 
Two more questions, Robert. The Astros have obviously had a lot of premium starters since you, you've been broadcasting for the club. Which have, have been the most entertaining you know, or interesting for you to watch? Garrett Cole, definitely. And also off the field, too. I mean, Garrett's just such an interesting guy. He's super smart. And not just about pitching, but like just about so many things. And he's just such a he was just such a fascinating guy to talk to. And, you know, was always uh, great to me uh, in terms of, you know, I was able to just ask him anything. And I think he also like obviously watching his maturation and development with the Astros, you know, his first year in 2018, he was really good. And then 2019, he was just on another level. And pitching is my favorite part of the game anyway. Uh, so it was just really fun to watch this guy who you just knew every day he pitched. There was a chance he could he could throw a no-hitter. There was a chance he could do something special that not too many guys get a chance to do in their careers. And obviously Verlander, because, you know, doing what he has been able to do at his age and still be one of the top pitchers in baseball, considering how many innings he's logged, is pretty impressive. And just to watch him every fifth day, watch the way he worked, watch the way he would figure things out go and go through lineups and didn't seem to get fatigued as quickly as pitchers who were much younger than him and still able to dial up, you know, mid-90s when he really needed it. That was really special to watch, too. And I hope we get to see that again. I mean, whether it's with the Astros or whomever, because obviously you know, Verlander's going to miss the year. And at his age, you hope he can come back and be a similar pitcher after Tommy John surgery, but you never know. You mentioned how Garrett Cole was uh, an interesting guy. And this, I think, is a good one to close with. Your broadcast partner is a former pitcher who I think qualifies as an interesting guy. And he's a very good broadcaster. Can you share a good Steve Spark story? So I get the Astros job in 2013, and Steve got the Astros job as well. We started the same year. We met five minutes before we were introduced as the new broadcast team for the Astros. We had never talked before. We had never met before that. And I remember, obviously, I did my research on him uh, like I do with any, you know, like it's I do the same thing when I do college basketball games. Like if it's someone I haven't worked with, I make sure I know at least some basics about his career and background. So those are things I can go to when I, you know, when we're on the air. So I did the same thing with Steve. And obviously I found out about him tearing the phone book in half and dislocating his shoulder and missing his big league debut would have probably been a year sooner, if not for that. And so I knew it was something I wanted to ask him about, but I didn't know when the right time would be. I figured there'd be a moment. I mean, we'd be together enough. So we fly together to Orlando from Houston and, you know, Astros were training in Kissimmee at the time. And uh, so we're on the plane and we were on the plane, maybe five minutes and he brought it up himself. And it was in a context of something else. I forget exactly how it came up, but he brought it up himself. So I'm like, all right, I've got my chance. So I just asked him, you know, what happened. And so he told me the whole story. And I think that was a microcosm of who Steve Sparks is. He doesn't take himself too seriously. It's pretty hard to embarrass him. And I think that's part of what makes him a really good broadcaster because he does play-by-play -play as well. And there are a lot of former players that get in the booth. They, they're afraid to fail, so they don't want to do play-by-play -play because they're, they're, you know, they don't want to fail at something. And, but Steve, he was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens. And he wants to be really good. But, yeah, he told me the phone book story, uh, the, literally 
within five minutes of the first extended conversation that we had together, but uh, which was which was pretty neat. And it's great now because we'll talk about I'll intentionally bring up when guys have weird spring training injuries. Like there was one recently. What was it? Uh, somebody cut himself trying to take his razor apart or something like that. Yeah, uh, Duplantier in uh, Diamondbacks camp cut himself trying to put his razor together or something like that and had to miss the spring training start. So, of course, I brought it up. And Steve, every time he goes, he was like, yeah, I don't understand these guys with these these stupid spring training injuries, which leads us to, you know, getting into his story, uh, which is always, always a lot of fun. And he's yeah. always a good sport. He's always a good sport about it. And it's no big surprise that he was a knuckleball pitcher. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no, great. I think we've, we're probably running a little over time here, so we will sign off. Once again, I am David Lorela, and that was Robert Ford. Robert, thank you much for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Thanks for having me on, David. Hey, everybody. It's another Fangraphs audio segment. I'm Fangraphs lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen, and I'm joined by roster resource guru, Jason Martinez. What's up, Jason? Oh, nothing much. How's everything going, Eric? It's good. It's busy. Uh, uh, We've all been dealing with, we're recording this on uh, Thursday the 25th, and at like 10 in the morning, it's like second inning in some of the Florida spring training games, and it's the positional power rankings week at Fangraphs, which is where... Everybody writes the equivalent of like three prospect lists <laughs> and then Meg has to edit every day the equivalent of like four to six prospect lists in essence, like in word count territory. So it's like a super intense week at the at the site, but I'm trying to squeeze in as much um, in-person spring training stuff here in Arizona before it's over as I can. How about how about you? What have you been doing? How have you been engaging with spring training the last couple of weeks? It's It's been... Pretty much business as usual. A lot of it is, is the same. I mean, a, a lot of injuries, obviously. And 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 if you're listening, you're looking. You know, you need need a reference for for what time this is. So the news about Elo Jimenez's shoulder possibly being serious is just breaking right now. So yeah, uh, developing story. Um, but that kind of stuff is like daily. You know, all the little mysteries here and there on 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 rosters are starting to starting to get solved. You know, little you know surprises to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, guys who came out of nowhere. All that stuff's been pretty normal. And I know it's probably more so for you. Trying to look ahead at the next month, as far as my you know, because because we're always thinking like, well. If this guy doesn't make the team, he's going to go to AAA and he's going to be throwing every five days and I'm going to keep him on schedule and stretch him out. Or this guy's going to go down to AAA and he's going to work on this and that. And so it's, we don't really have that. <laughs> we don't right. have that for at least a month. And so, so I know my mindset is different in that way. I mean, what, yeah. what, what about you? So, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of the same type of stuff for me it's been prioritizing seeing and caring about the teams who's like the back third of the prospect lists that still need to be done and just sourcing information in real time on most of the super relevant guys who are throwing or playing right now uh some of them against the best competition that they've ever played against some of them having you know showing up to spring in different shape or with velocity spikes so drawing from that and then I just love, it's super important to, to me and my eyeballs. One, to like, it's part of the reason I live here is to see as much of this stuff as possible. It's spring training and then extended spring training and f- instructs in fall league that are like the big reasons to live here. And so to see big leaguers every day, just about, it, it, 
really makes a difference for when spring training ends and then I have to do nothing but care about the the draft until July, right? Like to go see UCLA come into ASU right after I've seen big leaguers all month. It, it puts Matt McLean in a certain context for me visually in a way that I think is really helpful. And like even just random stuff, I, I think I maybe even have said this somewhere else publicly already, but like Evan Longoria was in my local card shop this week. And he's a monster. <laughs> like to see, to stand next to him as he's buying a couple boxes of Bowman Chrome, and I'm in there to get my Time Spiral remastered packs, and like to see what his back looks like in a, in just a normal person's T-shirt is like, oh, this is what I need to be looking for. Maybe I shouldn't give a damn about like a third of the amateur guys I do, who just aren't. This is a different type of guy. And there's something like that that happens at the field every day where I'm looking at someone, I'm just like, man, this guy is just physically different than everybody else. And this is, this is the type of thing I need to remind myself to, to be looking for. So let's talk about the Eloy thing, because that's, that is breaking like in real time that, you know, this notion that he might miss significant time. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that as much as I like Eloy and think he's really good, that the White Sox accidentally have a lot of depth at like this DH first base corner outfield area. It's almost been a point of criticism for me in like the last couple of prospect lists to say, you know, they've, they've drafted Jake Berger. They have Gavin Sheets on the 40 man. They drafted Andrew Vaughn. They have Eloy. They have Micah Rodolfo, a whole host of guys, Zach Collins, who really don't have a position. Your mean Mercedes just goes on and on. And they're all running out of options and they're running out of, they're losing leverage in trade discussions with these guys. Certainly the lack of a universal DH this year was detrimental to that as well. But now having an extra guy like this around, or maybe two guys who can pair together to platoon and better replicate Eloy's production might put them in better position to like deal with this at least for a little while. So if you're looking at the White Sox roster, obviously Andrew Vaughn and Jose Abreu now combine to do the first base DH type stuff. If you're looking at the roster and the way they've sort of get shaken playing time around during spring training, how would you anticipate some of these uh, left field at bats get divvied up? You know, I, I think they, the way they, they went about their off season, I, I think they were planning on Andrew Vaughn being ready early on. And I think they had that one extra spot that they could have used in the case where they thought Vaughn needed a little bit more time, maybe at least a half season or another full season in AAA. They could have bought it, brought in a legitimate bat to, to to take a lot of those DH at bats, possibly you can play a corner outfield uh, first base. Basically what Vaughn is, is going to be his first base and well, he's going to be DH and he's going to get some time at first base. He's bad over there though. He's still Oh, is he, like is, a... he, is he pretty bad? So so it's going to be mostly a Brayu. Yeah. I, I'm assume, I'm assuming at first base and you know, but if they wanted to give him a, a break, maybe throw Vaughn out there and see see how he looks. And so, but I thought there was a window there where they can take a look at Zach Collins. Where Zach Collins is not going to he doesn't have the path to being a regular catcher at least, you know, with with Grandal ahead of him. And so I thought Okay, if you're going to hold back Vaughn a little bit, it gives you a month, gives you maybe two months to, to really get a look at Zach Collins, DHing, And then you have an opportunity to have three catchers because they really like LaCroix having that veteran back there. And so once Adam Engel went down, yeah, so that's a really good fourth, fourth outfielder, he start, starts cutting into the depth. You know, So for me, I looked at it and I go, okay, well, let's, let's finally move Vaughn in there. 
um, into the projected lineup sounds like all indications are they're going to just say, all right, screw it. This, you know, we're not going to manipulate his service time. He looks, he looks like he knows what he's doing up there. Just let's just get him on the team. You know, they, they kept that spot open for him. You still got guys like Lurie Garcia who, who are going to bounce around, but now there's, there's less, less ability to, to utilize him that way if you really need him in left. And so if we're looking at the depth, you got, you know, the guys who are on the, on the 40 man already with Luis Gonzalez, Mike Rodolfo, Blake Rutherford, you know, in a, in a short, you know, maybe mixing a mix and matching on a short term basis. You, you, you can probably look at those guys and say, all right, well, that, that, that might work. You even added Billy Hamilton on a, on a minor league deal. I'm not sure w- what this does to his chances. I don't, I don't think, I don't think he would open a spot where they'd say, well, Hamilton and left or move Robert over to left so we can give Billy Hamilton some playing time. The guy who's in the lineup today is Nick Williams, who, you know, for, former prospect, former Rangers and Phillies prospect, and just, just kind of bust, kind of a bust, fell off the radar and, and signed there as a, as a, on a minor league deal. Mikey Matuk is in camp as well. So yeah, it's not, you know, with, with angle, with angle out. And, and just because I think they were planning on, on, you don't plan on Eloy Jimenez getting hurt, but I think they were pretty solid with like Vander uh, Vaughn's going to be ready early on. So I think they could have added somebody, and I think now there's an opportunity to add somebody if they're not leaning towards like if there's somebody they really like. They're like, well, maybe we trust Nick Williams. Maybe we want to take a longer look at, at Luis Gonzalez. Yeah, I thought that they had built like a, a really like a really tight championship level bench with. Angle, who's an elite defensive outfielder and complements Adam Eaton pretty well, left, right. And then, yeah, Mendick, Larry Garcia, you mentioned as like versatile infield. Garcia can play the outfield too. I do think it'll be interesting to see. Gavin Sheets has played some left field. I don't know that he's necessarily any more or less uh, offensively capable than Blake Rutherford or Luis Gonzalez, who are both lefty corner guys. I think that that's all kind of a wash. If you ask me to pick one of those three guys, it's Gonzalez, just because I feel the best about his bat-to-ball situation there. And then, yeah, you're talking about left-handed redundancy with Collins. It is sort of a mess now that Eloy's out, but I do think that they have enough depth to try to weather it. It's just about how to fit all the pieces together. And yeah, the Billy Hamilton thing becomes interesting in the short term. With angle out, and he strained his hamstring, and those are always pretty variable. But having that extra, I mean, Luis Roberts, fantastic. But having that extra guy who can really go get it in the outfield, I think, would be would be pretty cool. Uh, the other thing that came across yesterday that I thought was pretty interesting is in St. Louis. The Cardinals were granted a fourth option year on Justin Williams. And I've been watching a lot of the Cardinals on TV lately because that the four-team pocket in Florida is on like the prospect list itinerary coming up here. And Williams is... And it has always been this way. He's on like his, I think it's his third org now, Arizona, Tampa Bay, and now St. Louis. Uh, he's 25 and a half, really physical lefty stick, a lot of raw power, plate discipline's pretty good, bat-to-ball skills are okay, but his swing works. He's like Yandy Diaz. His swing just doesn't hit, lift the baseball ever. He's been a, please change this guy's swing because there's there's big underlying tools here guy for like since he was 20, 21. I'm not inclined to think that it's going to happen at this point. He's almost 26, so we're just sort of there. And in the meantime, Austin Dean and John Nagowski have hit really, really well and might make this club in like a reserve capacity in, in a way that maybe pairs with like Matt Carpenter off the bench in such a way or Tommy Edmond if he's going to play corner outfield someday. is like there's already some clogging going on with Carpenter and the rest of the infielders here. 
Uh, I'm curious how you, you've got Austin Dean projected into the Cardinals bench right now. Uh, how did you arrive at that? What, do you, what have you noticed about some of the Cardinals stuff so far this spring? So I, I think obviously, you know, based on their options right now, which is Justin Williams, Austin Dean, Lane Thomas, may, maybe Nagowski, you know, you got, you got the potential of a, left, a lefty-righty platoon. And Williams has done enough. Just hearing the buzz on, you know, the guys hitting the ball hard. He looks good in camp, which is it's just obviously a, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't tell us a, a whole lot except for when he's in this competition with a few other guys. He, he have, you know, he separated himself because he's a left-handed hitter, because he's hitting the ball well in camp. Austin Dean is a guy who can play first. He can play both corners. I don't know if he can handle center. I'm sure he's played center in the minors. Then Lane Thomas can play all three outfield positions as well. And so I think the the X factor is probably, it might be Matt, uh, Matt Carpenter, who's like one for 33 in camp, uh, but he's been playing second base. And I think if they trust him at second base and they want his bat in the lineup, and let's say this is just kind of a fluky slow start thing here in spring training, there's a chance they go with Carpenter at, at second and throw Edmund in the outfield. And then Nagowski, I'm not sure. I think left field uh, is where, where he played yesterday. I don't think he, ha- I think he has like a few games of experience in his whole minor league career, which is, you know, he's been in the minors forever. He's 28 years old. I um, mean, just pretty much playing first base the entire time. Yeah. And so I think, uh, you know, I, I think maybe you look at this guy who's big and strong and powerful and he's hitting the ball well. And then you go, okay, well, let's, Let's not undervalue this guy. You know, we traded a, a, another guy away, another first baseman away a couple of years ago, Luke Voigt. Who, um, right. And it's like, well, nobody th- – it was kind of like the same thing. Luke Voigt, you know, he's a, he's a first baseman who hits in AAA and, you know, but not huge numbers. But he seems like he can hit. But what is separating him? Everybody hits in AAA. <laughs> so maybe there's a little bit of that with Nagowski. Like, let's, let's really take a close look at this guy. But he's definitely getting a lot of buzz in, in spring training. He's – He's having a really good, good a good spring at the pre- at the plate. And everybody watched him in the DR over the winter too. Like the last couple of years for that Aguilas Cibaeñas team, he's been pretty good. The Cardinals send a bunch of guys there. Some some of the dudes who are on that roster used to be in the the Cardinals system and are not anymore. But like Edmundo Sosa played there, and Ronhel Ravello. You can see some patterns with like some of the big league teams feeding some of the winter league teams in the, in the Dominican and elsewhere. And that Aguilas team is definitely like the Cardinals' unofficial Dominican affiliate. And I'm looking at Nagowski's 2019. This is like Statcasty stuff that I sourced from a front office member, where it's got like the expected stats basically from his 2019 in AAA. And his expected numbers they are a little bit below what he actually did, but they're still pretty good. They're like you know, expected 283, 402 on base, 430 slugging. So I, I think that's, you know, that's a big league hitter. And like you mentioned, whether it's Luke Voigt or Garrett Cooper, there have been guys, Ryan McBroom's another really good example. Uh, and notice that the Yankees have trafficked in all three of these guys mm-hmm. that, yeah, they're these upper level guys who you think, eh, it's only first base. Like, is he really going to clear the bar enough to do that? And Jesus Aguilar was that guy for a long time too. And I think the answer is, with roster expansion that, yeah, like having a guy like this around, especially if he can, even if he can just kind of play first base and somewhere else can be really super duper valuable. I'd love, you know, McBroom coming off the bench 
to face lefties in late innings, like that's scary. If you're if you're an opposing manager, if you're a fan of the opposing team, like that's a guy who can, you know, you walk somebody and that dude can can put a game within reach within one swing of the bat, even if it's like a four run game. So, so yeah, I think that Nagowski, I'd try to find a way to roster him if I were the Cardinals. I think the extra option you're on Williams allows you to do that, but the the handedness with your bench bats there then becomes super duper clunky. All right, so. As far as where I've been this week, I saw uh, Denelson Lamette throw last night uh, at Scottsdale Stadium, his first spring outing, officially sp- uh, spring outing. I know he's thrown like live VPs or in B games or something like that. Uh, and I think he's gone as many as two innings in those, but he threw one inning against the Giants last night, was 95 to 98. Uh, the whole inning didn't get, uh, you know, very many breaking balls just because it was the one inning, but he looks pretty healthy. Uh, how about your how about your Padres here, Jason? What are you what are you looking at noticing about their the makeup of their roster here as we approach opening day? Well, I, I think that all that depth they collected over over the offseason or over the last couple of years is is paying off because they have a lot of guys hurt right now. And I think that it's pretty clear why why they didn't stop it at just Blake Snell and Hugh Darvish. They're like, we're gonna keep going. We got Joe Musgrove, and I think they're really looking at Lamette's situation and saying whatever he gives us is a bonus. It sucks as a as a baseball fan, you know, just knowing that this guy had, you know, they said he was close to, you know, maybe pushing it too far and having to needing to have Tommy John surgery. But at the same time, that's these aren't it's hard to, you know, just the progression of a guy who has an elbow injury never really ends well. It doesn't matter how long they try to put it off. The elbow hurts you know, they have to back off or, you know, forearm soreness or something like that. It usually comes back. And so I'm I'm interested in it's the first time I kinda I, I, I heard it explained this way, re- reported this way, and then who knows what you know what's going on. They're always trying to be optimistic about these things. But to say like he if he would have kept pitching last year, he would have had had to have Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. Again again, which is, you know, why he was he was off the radar for a while. And by not having Tommy John surgery at the end of last year, he's, you know, he, they're taking it slow and seeing if he can pitch it all in 2021. But then if, if he actually does need Tommy John surgery now, he's going to miss <laughs> the next two seasons. Right. So it's, yeah. it's kind of, man, it, it's, that's the one, probably the one thing in baseball that's just like, it just bums me out. And it's just like, oh, that guy's out for for two years you know it's and it's something they haven't figured out it's like you try all these different things all these different training methods all these different you know you know as far as managing your workload and like there isn't one thing they can point at and say this is the thing that's going to keep you healthy these guys just they throw really hard i think i think they tend to you know, I, I think the the max velocity is is or the percentage of max velocity has had, has had to go up and that's because everybody can hit a home run so you don't have a lot of room for air. <laughs> so so you don't, you know, back when I was a kid, it was like, yeah, this guy can throw 95, but he usually works 89, 90, and, and, and that's so he can get through eight innings or whatever. And, you know, but he might he might throw it harder against the middle of the order, but, you know, the sixth, seventh, and eighth guys, and, and then the pitcher, well, you know, you don't have, you just throw it down the middle and, and uh, you get those guys out. You're, you're trying to, not to throw too many pitches. But now you got everybody throwing so hard. You got somebody like Lamette who already throws 98, but then he throws that slider like half the time. And I've seen a lot of examples of that, you know, like a Matt Whistler, you know, Brad Hand, when he came to the Padres, it was like, why is this guy good now? It was like, well, he just throws his slider, his breaking bits like 
almost every time and it's really good and maybe that's going to lead to an injury or something you know drew pomeranz as well it was another example in san diego um whereas like how is this guy good now but you look at his is how often they throw their best pitch i think that was just like the the plan that's your best pitch just keep throwing that they can't hit it but is it is it sustainable, you know, to keep throwing that that pitch? Is it sustainable to keep throwing as hard as you can? And so it's just it's 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 interesting to see how how that's progressed over you know and changed the game over time. But it's also a lot more injuries, which sucks. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, and it is one of those things that's like impossible to know. But and this veers off into some of the other news of this week in the last couple of weeks. But like, look. We don't really know so much of this changed very, very fast, the way pitchers trained and how hard they were all throwing simultaneously, but also independent from that. Some of the stuff on the tech side was growing in such a way that batted balls became trackable in a more accurate way. And then the defensive positioning piece changed and like all of this stuff was happening simultaneously. And I don't know if the right answer is to is as a game is to wait patiently for hitting to catch up for a generation of players to be like dealing with the shift. You know, like so many current big leaguers were just here already when everyone decided to shift. And it's not really reasonable to ask them to change their approach, to spray the ball now, to disincentivize teams from shifting. It's 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 just ridiculous to be like, well, just hit it the other way. Like it's really not that easy. And now this MLB wants to do away with the, well, that's not true. MLB is testing to see about maybe doing away with shifting and limiting what teams can do defensively. And I think that it just provides more incentive for hitters to pull the ball. Like why bother doing anything but pull the ball with power when when you miss hit it, it's going to be a single more often than not anyway now. You know, like if Ryan Howard didn't have to deal with the shift, like if baseball doesn't want the game to be strikeouts, home runs, and walks, and I don't either, but if they don't want it to be that, why do they think getting rid of the shift, which, you know, think about who has been shifted historically the most, right? Even before we had the batted ball tracking uh, tech piece, people knew to shift Howard. They knew to shift David Ortiz and Jim Tomey. It's, these aren't like contact action on the infield type hitters who were being shifted against. You're rewarding power hitters by doing away with the shift because now they can just pull the ball with impunity. And I don't I don't see why baseball doesn't get that. I don't see why, you know, folks like Bob Costas, who's a smart guy who wants what I want in baseball, like a more action-y balls in place, stolen base type of game. Like that's what I want too, but but I don't I, I think there's a huge disconnect in how people think that we're gonna get there and also that there's no appreciation for the ripple effects caused by some of this decision-making. As soon as we got accurate pitch location data, then catcher framing became a thing. Again, those two things aren't directly connected to one another. You have to make that connection preemptively in your head and know that implementing this technology is going to make this change over here in this other area that's not really directly connected to this. Uh, And so to make any of these changes that they have proposed to test at the minor league level this year is for sure going to have unintended consequences. And you're also creating more wiggle room. Anytime that the, that the the game is shaken up like this, and no offense because there are a lot of people listening to this who are this type of person who work in the game, but the wrong type of person 
is the one who benefits from that. The person who can quote unquote move fast and break things, right, is the type of person who's going to figure out how to take advantage of the nooks and crannies and loopholes created by the new rules. And they're going to lean into those in the extreme. It's going to become trendy. And then the whole game will shift that way and augment the way it looks like it has with everything else for the last 20 years. And the problem with the move fast and break things philosophy of life or business or whatever is that stuff gets broken. And so what's broken for, you know, the very visceral thing for me is scouting, right? And some of that is related to COVID, but because of yada, 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 tech and video, quantification of stuff, scouting is de-emphasized and this whole arm of the industry atrophies and kind of dies away, it would seem, or at least is at threat to. And so like, why bother implementing all this new when that seems likely to happen again? All that's going to happen is the types of people who are good at figuring that type of stuff out will figure it out and do the things that they do, which is part of why we are in this place that we are in. Anyway. <laughs> well said. Well said, man. I enjoy that. All right. So moving on to Cleveland's outfield platoon situation, which has just seems to have been a thing for the last several many years. Uh, they acquired Ahmed Rosario. They are, have tried to get him to play center field. That has not been great unless you like watching sports bloopers or you're like someone looking for content to make a sports blooper video to show your gym class. Jake Bowers has been around. Brad Zimmer has been around. Jordan Luplo. That's who you have in the mix for the big league club right now, Jason. Talk me through what you think about the the many Cleveland outfielders who might contribute to um, them trying to run it back without Lindor. Yeah. Well, I love sports bloopers, man. So if, if that if Rosario out there helps it out, I, I, I miss this week in baseball, man. The sports blooper segment, and then and then all the all the great plays. I miss that so much. But um, anyways, it, yeah, Rosario is it seem for what it seems like because nobody's really there's not like one guy who's just obviously Oscar Mercado came into the camp. You know, just based on what he did in 2019, I think they're willing to overlook the short season in 2020 and how bad he was. But he, yeah, he, he still struggled. They sent him out. And now they're left with, you know, just a few options. Bradley Zimmer, Rosario, and then you got Ben Gamel, who's in there on an on-roster deal. And then you got Jordan Luplo. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how, how much they'd want to put him, play him in center. He's been mostly corner outfielder. And I think he'll be in, in that lineup against lefties either way. Obviously, if they trust him in center, he can play a lot more. So I think just having that uncertainty right now, they're in a position where they could be patient with Rosario. They think like, this guy's he's athletic, he can play shortstop, he can run, he, he could probably figure out center field. Let's just throw him out there. There's going to be there's gonna be some ups and downs, probably more downs than ups. But let him figure it out because we know most likely he's going to put up the, the, the best offensive numbers out of, you know, between him and and Zimmer, for sure, you, you know, Gamel, Gamel could probably be okay there. I don't think, you know, I, I think he probably gives them the most the most certainty as far as like, we know what this guy is. We know what he's going to do. So you got a few different options there. And I don't know if anybody's really separating themselves. Zimmer, Zimmer is on the 40-man roster. He's had a decent camp. He could run. He can, you know, they, 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 they know he can go get it out there. So, yeah, it's... I'm interested to see the waiver wire and then guys who are opting out of their their minor league deals over these next few days. Yep. Because I see a few teams where it's like, yeah, you could probably 
you know, not not just the White Sox. Who are not, now the news is, is looking, I don't think there's been an official announcement on Eloy yet, but it sounds like he could be out for months. But I think, you know, the White Sox, I think the Astros can use a fourth outfielder who can play center field. And there's going to be a couple other teams. But yeah, I think, I think Cleveland, I think they're in a spot where... They're not quite ready to say we're we're rebuilding. I think they want to see how it goes. They want to say let's let's throw out our roster on opening day and see how it looks after a month or two. If if we're as bad as yeah. people assume, then we can well yeah well maybe we'll start going with some of our younger guys and give guys like Nolan Jones a look and Gabriel Arias eventually and some of the younger guys. At this point, I don't think they're ready to do that. Which is why I'm kind of thinking they might not be ready to just say, all right, throw Ahmad Rosario and let him figure it out. Let's see what Zimmer can do. I think, you know, which kind of has me leaning towards Ben Gamel if it's an internal candidate, because I think they, he'd probably be fine there. And, but also I think they're open to seeing what, what else is out there on the waiver yeah. wire free agency. That's the thought I had too, uh, and it occurred to me as we were talking about the San Diego roster as well, because so much of what we expect, or what you know you expect, and therefore I expect, their opening day roster to look like in the bullpen is full of like optionless guys, right? Like they would rather, even if they think Ryan Weathers and Michelle Baez or whoever would be better at the end of the season in the in the bullpen, like when you're taking your best thirteen guys into into a postseason battle. I think that now you still need to think about depth. And I think that that applies to this Cleveland outfield situation too. So you have Jake Bowers, who's got no options left. And you have Brad Zimmer, who has one. Even though I like Zimmer, if I'm having to choose between those two, I might be inclined to take Bowers just because like Zimmer has the option left. And they are in a, like, let's see if the cream rises to the top here where they have Naylor and they have Rosario and they have Bowers and they have Zimmer. And they have Luplo who mashes lefties and like Yu Chang who may be a try out there, like who's had a really good spring. Chang is one of those guys who I loved at one point as a prospect and then he just struck out a ton and moved from shortstop to third and then all of a sudden it was like, well, maybe this is a bench guy. He looks pretty good this spring. So he's interesting. Then Nolan Jones is the one wild card. Him getting reps in and then maybe moving full-time to the outfield, although it's center field that's the problem here, right? It's like yeah. Eddie Rosario and you know, Bowers and, and Naylor are likely to, to do some sort of corner stuff, whereas Oscar Mercado can really go get it in center field, but just can't hit. He's struggling again. Daniel Johnson is the other one where, look, if, if Cleveland thought he was good, then maybe they would just be inclined to, I don't know, we just have seen him by now. He's 25 and a half going on 26. We would just have, would have seen more Daniel Johnson, I think, if Cleveland thought he was truly good. And that's why, yeah, Gamble... Even Stephen Kwan has gotten a little NRI look out there, but he doesn't have to be added to the 40 until December. Yeah, Gamble's the one where it's like, I know what I'm getting. I feel really good about him playing against righty pitching. But Zimmer is the one who, if they want to catch lightning in a bottle, where his tools are so explosive. He's going to strike out 30% of the time, but from a power speed perspective, he stretched a double the other day that I was just like, wow, that guy is really motoring for how big and strong he is. I I roll with that and see what they they got out of him just to see if you could... uh, develop anything against big league pitching let him let him play let him hit and see what happens the tools there are the biggest uh yeah, he's, all right he's one, he's one of those guys that you're gonna see him at times and you go oh wow who is this guy right you know and then you go oh he was a first round draft pick oh he was their number one prospect <laughs> right well, he's 28 years old now and it didn't all come together but yeah there's a reason that he was a first round pick and a top prospect and he'll show you that at times but the difference is doing that over a full season which is going to be the the most 
the most challenging thing for a for baseball player. And that's why it's like, it doesn't matter. They're all really good. At, they can be really good for short stretches. The ones that can be good for a year and then multiple years, those are, those are the guys right there that you have to really admire. All right. So last thing before we split, Meg circulated the sheet for staff predictions. And I'm curious, Jason, if there are any division winners or wildcard spots or end of year awards like that you have the hardest time in your head thinking about who you will end up picking. Like it's really easy to be like, I'm going to pick Trout for the AL MVP. And I Mm -hmm. think that's probably what I'll end up doing. Like it's just totally justifiable, feels right. Picking either the Rays or the Yankees to win the East also feels right. But what is the hard, what are the hard ones for you? What are the the ones that if you're, if I ask you, Hey, who's going to win the AL Central or whatever that you might have a harder time deciding on? I think the AL West has gotten a lot. I mean, they. I think, you know, it got to the point where the Astros are just way ahead of everybody. I think they've come back to the pack a little bit and they've had so many injuries. They're dealing with, they're relying on so many young guys now, which worked out in the short season. I don't know how that's going to work out over 162 yeah. games. No Springer, no Verlander. Yeah, yeah. So you lost some big stars there. They didn't add too much. And so, you know, you lose a guy like Framber Valdez. And every team is losing oh, yeah. players now, which is why when, when you when you don't have an, a very active offseason, because you go, oh, we're, we're already good. we got a lot of young talent. But now they're relying more on the young guys. The A's didn't do much in the offseason. And we know the A's are always that team to, to figure things out. And, and, you know, but if you look at them on paper, they're not, they're not great. And so I look at that, that division and I go, there's room for the angels, you know, especially with Otani. Otani's that difference maker, both on both sides, offense and pitching, he's a difference maker. And so you got a a team with multiple stars in that lineup, a lot of pitch, a lot of rotation depth, and we'll see what happens. The bullpen is already, it's better, but now you lose a couple guys injury and it doesn't look so good. But the Angels and Mariners are a team on the rise. Well, I think they can be surprised. I think they could surprise some people, but, you know, may, maybe not up there with the, with the others. But I think it's going to be close enough to where it's going to be interesting, where I wouldn't just look at that division and say, oh, the Astros are going to win it. I'd be, I tend to, to go for a, a while, you know, go, go for a, a little bit more unpo- unpopular pick. And I'd probably go. I'd probably go with the Angels and say this is going to be the year they're going to do it for Trout. Right. It is interesting to see Justin Upton really have a monster spring and look really, really good. And yeah, Otani. They simplified his footwork in the box. It looks like to me, and just are letting his strength and power dictate the contact. And there's just enough of it there that he's making a huge impact contact anyway, even with the toned down leg kick and everything. I don't think he's going to be great as a pitcher. I think that ultimately we'll see him in the bullpen or he'll be like an inefficient opener type of guy. Once a week, you know, the, the command is just not there, in my opinion, to see him work six plus innings every time out. It's just not going to happen. But yeah, I'm with you. I have all of, I'm staring at the sheet right now. I have all of my AL postseason picks in except for the AL West. I'm not sure what I want to do there. Oakland is thin. It scares me how thin they are. I think I like their talent as much as anybody in the division's. And it just scares me how thin the the pitching staff is. And guys like Bassett and Montas and Puck, and they've all been hurt a bunch over the course of their careers. And I'm just sort of waiting for it to happen again. Lazardo too, much as I love him. And then what I do with Cy Young in the, in the AL, I don't know. I've got Trout and Kelnick penciled in as my MVP and Rookie of the Year picks. And these are subject to change, people. But uh, but Vaughn is looking pretty, pretty spiffy now that Eloy is going to be out early on. And he seems like Vaughn would have made the roster anyway but ample at-bats for him. 
Uh, and then the other ones are like, I don't know, the NL postseason spots I have in pretty good. And then it's the the single player awards that I struggle with here. Like I like Trey Turner as a sneaky MVP pick. The Nationals always seem to find a way to kind of hang around. And they're another one where like the pitching staff just feels thin. And the farm system, unless they really want to be like, here's Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge, like their best couple guys who are really the only couple dudes that they have left in there. I have a hard time seeing them adding to keep pace with the Mets. So I've got like Trey Turner as a sneaky MVP pick. He might You might see that on the staff predictions. Although like you got to love Mookie, you got to love Juan Soto, you got to love Tatis and Acuna and Arenado and like any number of guys. And then same for NL Cy Young. I've got Stroman in there now because I just, I'm dying to see... Stroman pitch with Lindor and Luis Guillorme on the left side of the infield while he throws. Like, please, please, please give me that. We got to see Jose Iglesias and Freddie Galvis play the middle infield together for a little bit in Cincinnati. And uh, it was so wonderful. And so give me Lindor and Guillorme with Stroman getting a million grounders every game. Please, please, please. That's what I want to see. So do you have any uh, parting parting thoughts, Jason? Um. Well... Let's uh, you know, fi- fi- have my fingers crossed for no more major injuries. Let this Eloy Jimenez one be be the last before o- opening day, and that yeah, that's it. We're a week away, man. That's good. Yep. That's yeah, good. I'm ready sure. to. I'm I'm ready to get my second vaccine shot. Yeah, and not worry and and be there and just be totally there. And I hope that everyone listening to this gets to that point too, where you can just go and feel that freedom of you know. Being at a baseball game again and and not having to worry about yourself or anybody else. So for Jason Martinez, I'm Eric Longenhagen. This has been another Fangraphs Audio segment. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program and want to help us out, you can simply tell somebody about it. Tweet about the show or just send it to a friend. It is all appreciated as we continue to grow. We will be back next week with an episode for opening day. Talk to you then.